Growing your business is tough, but don't worry, we've got you covered. We interview industry experts on how they've solved their most challenging business problems in SaaS or e-commerce. No fluff, just step-by-step playbooks to help you dominate your market and crush the competition. This is the How We Solve podcast. Here's your host. All right, and we're live with another How We Solve episode. And today we are talking to Professor Adam Zeman. He's trained in medicine at Oxford University Medical School. And after a first degree in philosophy and psychology, and later in neurology in Oxford. And Adam has done something, he has coined the term aphantasia, which is something that I have been dealing with. I found out that I have a little over a year ago, which sent me down the rabbit hole to really understand how people's minds work. So I'm super excited to talk to him today about aphantasia. He's the foremost expert in this topic, and he's an expert on imagery extremes, how images work in the mind. He specialized in clinical work in cognitive and behavioral neurology, including neurological disorders of sleep. Actually, I'm also not sleeping very much. Maybe this is also related to my aphantasia. Adam has published a lot of books, but today we will drill into aphantasia. So Adam, thank you very much for being on. Very nice to be here. Thank you. So Let's maybe starting out with my story. A year ago, I, I was talking to one of my business partners who is very visual. He's our CTO, so he's very technical, but he also draws beautiful pictures and he composes music. And he said, I see so many pictures in my head that I want to draw and I hear so many songs that I want to compose. I can't get them out. You know, it's like, it's, it's hard work for me to get them out. And I was like, what are you talking about? You know, because I never thought it's literal that people see things in their heads, which, you know, it was never the case for me. So this is when I start Googling, having no images in my mind, and I found the closed mind's eye, and I found your work, and it completely blew my mind, but it explained so many things after I've been digging in what aphantasia means. So could you give your explanation of what aphantasia is? Well, you've given a very beautiful introduction to it. Aphantasia is the absence of, of mental imagery, specifically at least at the start of our story, the absence of a mind's eye. So most people, when they call to mind an apple or their front door or the face of somebody they they love, will have an experience which is somewhat visual. So in general, if one says to somebody, imagine an apple, you ask them what color it is, they'll be able to give a, a definite answer because they will have called to mind an image which is not generally quite as vivid as looking at an apple, but which gives them something of the experience of looking. And people with aphantasia are, are unable to do that. They see nothing when they call images to mind. They know perfectly well what an apple is. They're able to recognize apples. They know all sorts of things about apples, but they can't see them in their mind's eye. While our initial interest was sparked by the discovery that there were people who lacked visual imagery, it turns out that many people who lack visual imagery actually lack imagery in other sense modalities also. I'm not sure whether this is true of you, but many people with aphantasia will lack a mind's ear, a mind's fingertip, a mind's nose. No, just, n- no, no sounds, no tastes, no smells, and also no emotions. I cannot relive emotions as, okay. as well. Okay. That's very interesting. So yes, we now think of aphantasia as a, a state in which people can lack sensory imagery generally. So it's not, not, not necessarily just a lack of the mind's eye. As I'm sure we'll explore during this conversation, there's much more to say about it. One peculiarity is that many people with aphantasia dream visually. Is that true for you? I can dream visually, but I dream maybe once a month and then I I know it for like, I don't know, like a split second when I wake up. And it's usually when I 
wake up and I go back to sleep and then wake yeah. up after a short period of time. This is when I remember something, yeah. but it happens very rarely. Yeah, yeah. The sort of state in which you're midway between waking and sleeping seems to be a very conducive one to imagery. So some people with aphantasia say that even though they can't call anything to mind deliberately during the day, as they're drifting off to sleep, they will have flashes of imagery that they may dream visually. So aphantasia doesn't seem to prevent the brain from performing images in all circumstances. It primarily deprives people of the ability to conjure images to mind, summon images to mind deliberately when asked to do so. I always knew I'm, I'm different. For example, my father passed away or our father passed away when I was 12 and it took me maybe like a few hours to get over it. I told myself, this is nothing I can do. This is nobody's fault. It is what it is. And this was kind of like, you know, every, everything is like a logical concept in my mind. You know, so it was like very, very easy for me to get over it. On the other hand, my brother, who has hyperphantasia, similar similar to you, he is, is still dealing with this like 30 years after, like still suffering from this moment. And he also can, he has a hard time looking at images, or like pictures, because when he looks at the picture, it brings all the emotions back that happens during this period of time. And it's, or he can tell me th things like, hey, do you remember like, I don't know, 15 years ago, you were wearing this shirt and these pants we were in this room listening to this song this poster was on the wall like he has like this super detailed memory of like everything and to me it's just like yeah. i can hardly remember the incident you know like it's like yeah so it's okay that's very typical also so imagery seems to be a very strong driver of emotion and although we haven't really looked at this scientifically yet i have many times heard the kind of story you're telling that because of the lack of imagery it's easier to move on it's easier to, to move from the city you're living into another without too much regret it's it's easier to get over a breakup the second association you just mentioned with memory does seem to be a strong one, and we have done a bit of work on that. So although I don't, I'm sure we'll come on to talk about this, I don't regard aphantasia as, as a disorder or a deficit precisely, but it does seem to be associated with a thinning of autobiographical memory. So by and large, people with aphantasia have a less rich recollection for individual episodes from their past than the average, and certainly than people with very vivid imagery like your brother. So, yes, that capacity to call sensory imagery to mind seems to enrich memory. Of course, there might be an advantage to not having your mind too cluttered with imagery. Maybe someone like you has a more accurate factual memory, for example. I think the biggest benefit from having aphantasia is that you don't dwell in the past. Because, like, you know, talking to quote-unquote normal people, People always have a lot of emotional baggage that they carry around that's holding them back, etc. And I'm completely free of this. You know, so I think it does, I think that's like the key advantage of having aphantasia that you're not held back by emotional baggage for the lack of a better word. Interesting. Do you enjoy reading fiction? I read an insane amount of books, but it's always like right. personal development or business related or you know, but like fiction books, not 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 so much now. So that's, that's another story we've heard. Again, it's not something we've looked into formally, but certainly many people with Aphantasia say that they don't, they don't really enjoy reading novels much, particularly novels with a lot of description, because it doesn't evoke anything for them. I think that travels with the, the kind of th thinness of autobiographical memory and with the, the tendency by and large for people with Aphantasia to live in the present, as you describe, which of course is something that lots of us are trying to achieve, aren't we? we through meditation and mindfulness and so forth, people are, are often trying to bring themselves into the present and to kind of rescue themselves from preoccupations with the past, which, as you say, can be a burden. Yeah, actually, I'm a, I'm a personal development geek, so I like to tune myself and do every, everything possible to be my personal A-game. 
And I used to meditate and do yoga every morning and I stopped the meditation piece because I guess the benefit of meditation is that your mind is calm and my mind is always calm, but I need the physical part. Like if I exercise, if I sweat every day, then, then I'm happy. Overall, I think it's definitely a more of a positive thing than a negative thing. But I'm, I'm curious to hear from you because I'm always a fan of like finding crutches or finding workarounds or finding like things that, that help me to deal with this better. So one thing after I became aware of aphantasia that I have it was the realization of I, and this sounds horrible, but I do not feel empathy. I have deep logical empathy. I really care about people. Everybody who knows we can, can probably attest to this, but I can't feel it. For example, actually if maybe a few months ago, I had the first time I had a loss in, in our family where I was aware of having aphantasia. One of my our dogs passed away and she's been with me for 15 years. She was kind of like my dog. She was with me everywhere. And, you know, I was traveling in the U.S. And my wife here being in Turkey, the, the dog, she had to put the dog down. And I'm on a video call with my wife and this person that I care for so deeply. My wife is like bawling and it's like completely destroyed and crying. And my dog just died and I feel nothing, which, you know, was like a very weird, very different experience from like what I think that other people go through. When my wife was diagnosed with breast cancer, the doctor told me first and I had this very unpleasant feeling in my stomach for a second, but then it immediately went to logic brain. Okay, this really sucks. How do we fix this? Kind of always going into the not being in the victim mode, just like kind of going into the fixing mode. And when this happened, actually it happened too fast, you know, just like felt too fast, like dealing with this in, in such a fast manner. So I went to a psychiatrist and had a bunch of sessions with her and she was not aware that something like aphantasia exists because, you know, it's like a few years back. And she just said, I just process emotions faster than others, you know, because I came to us like, hey, I'm somehow broken, you know, I think I have no emotions. <laughs> Actually, when I always, when, when I said this jokingly, like, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm German, I have no emotions. Like the Americans always like, ha, that's funny. Like when I told this to Germans, they like, what do you mean? You know, so, but yeah. So I'm curious, what other patterns do you see, like where people find crutches to overcome the downsides of having aphantasia? So I guess maybe the kind of preliminary question is whether having aphantasia is, is a disorder, whether, it, whether it's something that needs to be fixed. And my general view is that it, that it isn't, that it's a kind of fascinating variation in, in human experience, rather akin to some other odd phenomena like synesthesia. The synesthesia is the, the kind of mixing of the senses. Some people with synesthesia, for example, may see letters of the alphabet in particular colors. It's clearly, and that, that's a consistent tray right through their lives, which is clearly odd and unusual, but, but not a disorder, not something that, that needs fixing. And I tend to think of aphantasia in the same kind of way. Maybe it's a little different in that there are one or two deficits, if you like, associated with aphantasia. So the three things that have come to light are the autobiographical memory, which, which we've discussed, Face recognition difficulty. This isn't true of everyone with aphantasia by any means, but quite a lot of people with aphantasia say they have trouble recognizing familiar faces. They find it harder than others. And then there is a, there's a link with autistic spectrum disorder. Again, by no means in, across the board, but there does seem to be a, an association between aphantasia and autistic spectrum disorder. So there are some associations with what you might call conditions or deficits, but it's clear that it's also associated with quite a number of strengths. When we looked at occupation, we found that people with aphantasia were more likely to be working in scientific, mathematical, IT-related trades, suggesting that aphantasia may confer some benefit to abstract thinking. 
And I have a kind of gut feeling that exactly what you're describing is true too, that it may be associated with a, with a rather kind of active personality, with a, with a tendency to get things done, to fix things. And of course, you know, things need to get fixed. So, so it's, great, it's great if there are people around with those abilities. So I'm not sure that it should be thought of as a, as a problem that needs to be fixed, but rather as an aspect of somebody's makeup, which has some disadvantages, but which also has some clear advantages. The question is like, can it be fixed? You know, can, if I take like extreme hallucinogenic drugs, like will something yeah. happen? So we know that many people with aphantasia dream visually. We know that the aphantasic brains, if you like, are capable of generating imagery or something like it. The straight answer to your question is yes. If people with aphantasia take hallucinogens, they do often see imagery, but it's not generally controllable and it doesn't confer an ability to conjure up imagery subsequently. So it's a little bit like inducing a dream, if you like. Um, it seems to be pretty hard from what we know for people with lifelong aphantasia to cultivate imagery, to learn how to, to develop it. And my hunch is that there is some, probably some biological feature of the brains of people with aphantasia, which makes it difficult to turn thought into image, if you like. It occurs to me that I should say, I'm sure aphantasia is more than one thing. I think it's a feature of experience, and I think it can occur in a number of different contexts. So, for example, there are people with really bad face recognition difficulties who have aphantasia, and I think they're a special group because most people with aphantasia don't have that kind of face recognition difficulty. And we also know that aphantasia can occur in an acquired form. So occasionally brain injury or psychiatric disorder can cause people to lose imagery having previously had it. So it occurs in quite a number of contexts. And there's a good bit of work to do to sort out the various different subtypes. And it may be that people with some subtypes can learn to generate imagery, rather, whereas others can't. So we're, we're at a quite early stage in understanding this. Yeah, I think it's probably genetic. In my case, I always thought it's genetic because I can't recall, you know, having a poor memory. I can't recall if I ever had a visual mind. And I think my mother, unfortunately, passed away a few years ago. But I think she, just like from her personality type, like kind of being very even keeled, you know, I have like, if the range of emotions of like being in such a super good mood and like being depressed, like I'm kind of always up here, you know, kind of like very, like no peaks and valleys. And my mother was the same personality. So I think probably she had this as well. But I also had like, I just met the first person in the wild who also has aphantasia after talking about this. He's, you know, I asked him the, the imagined apple and I asked him for the color. And he's like, huh, you know, like there was an apple. And he had a brain injury. And I think as a child, I also had like a, you know, an accident, which could, I think I was uh, like 10 or 11 years old. So maybe this is related. It seems to us that much the commonest form of aphantasia is lifelong aphantasia, not related to brain injury or to any sort of psychiatric disorder. And of course, it's hard to be sure, but, you know, all of us have mucks on the head once in a while um, and they don't generally cause any serious long-term consequences. Aphantasia seems to be, it's not very common, but it occurs probably in around 3% of the population. Oh, 3%. Wow. That high. There are a lot of folk like you out there, and there does seem to be a genetic link. Um, if you have aphantasia, there's a roughly tenfold increase in the chance that your first degree relatives will have it. So we're, we're hoping to, to hunt for some aphantasia genes or some visual imagery genes in future work. I suspect that there is at least a genetic influence, as there is on most psychological characteristics. Very interesting. Yeah, I tested my daughter and she definitely does not have it. She was able to conjure up an apple with like lots of stuff around, like, you know, describing the room where the, where the apple was laying, you know, so it's not the case for her. 
On the uh, question of whether it is treatable or should be treated, we held the world's first conference for people with aphantasia and hyperphantasia a couple of years ago. And we asked the audience whether they would like to have vivid imagery if we could magically confer it on them. And there was a lot of discussion about this. And, and in the end, the, the fairly universal answer was, yes, we'd like to have it for a day. We'd like to be able to go back to the way we are. <laughs> so, so people were kind of curious to know what the experience tasted like, but they, they actually mostly felt rather comfortable with their own situation. And that was another, another interesting aspect of the conference is that we'd been slightly nervous. I'd been slightly nervous that there might be two groups of people in the room, people with aphantasia who are feeling rather hard done by and that they've missed out on something that they really should have had. And people with hyperphantasia, very vivid imagery, imagery is as vivid as real seeing, who are feeling rather pleased with themselves because they, you know, they, they were able to perform this trick. But actually, it wasn't like that at all. And both the, the groups, people at both extremes, clearly recognized that there were the pros and cons, pluses and minuses, to being at either extreme of this spectrum. I probably would not want to trade it, kind of very much used to it and seeing how people suffer from the emotional roller coaster of life. I think I prefer to be as I am, even though kind of not having the, the peaks of excitement, kind of just like always seeing my brother who's four years younger than me, who's like uh, very much feels things way more intense in the positive sense, but also negative sense. But I think the, the negative is always like more dominant than the positive. So I definitely like to stay where I am. There's been a really interesting experiment looking into this recently conducted by a guy called Joel Pearson, who's an imagery researcher in Sydney. In this study, which compared a group of people with imagery and a group of people with aphantasia, um, really scary stories were read while people's skin conductance was being measured. And these stories, I mean, I don't have particularly vivid imagery, but these stories certainly gave me the heebie-jeebies. So you're, you're swimming in, a, in warm water in a sunny bay. There are people on the beach. At some point, you turn your head and you notice that people on the beach all seem to be looking in your direction. And then you look the other way and you see that there's a, a fin advancing towards you. And you know, things go from bad to worse in this story. And most people, when they have that story read to them, have a hike in skin conductance. They sweat. People with aphantasia don't. Joel's explanation for this is that it's the visual imagery that mediates between the story and the, the emotional response. And it's not that these folk with aphantasia couldn't generate an emotional response because if you showed them really scary photos, they weren't able to respond in the in an emotional way to or in a strongly emotional way to the to the stories because of the lack of imagery, which I guess fits in with your your account of your your temperament and your and your interests. I've been reading through the comments on your YouTube videos and one of them somebody said, like, you know, oh, I've been going like he had a hard time with his math teacher, like because he could not visualize certain things. And he's like, you know, he said he's been going over this over and over, like what the teacher said, kind of like and kind of being being very much stressed by this. And this is like not, you know, like I said, even if you have person have aphantasia, your personality still plays like a, a huge role, kind of upbringing or whatever, how people have been reacting to stuff. Because like this like does not I cannot relate. Or somebody said like, oh, she was so destroyed by realizing that she's been missing out on images and, you know, she was like crying for two weeks. So like, I can't, you know, for me, it's just like, okay, very interesting. It would be interesting to have this, but like acceptance and, and moving on, you know? Yeah. I, I would say generally that if people have a very marked emotional response to discovering that they have aphantasia, there's something else going on. That's not the, the whole explanation. Um, what you said just now also reminded me to mention that 
one might think that aphantasia means that people are going to be unimaginative. And that's not true. Imagination seems to be a much more complicated capacity than visualization, which is what's lacking in, in aphantasia or the ability to conjure up sensory imagery. So we have many examples now of highly imaginative people who are aphantasic. So for example, Craig Venter, who's the first person to decode the human genome, is a geneticist who's always reckoned that some of his scientific prowess relates to lacking imagery. Ed Katmal was the head of Pixar, um, recently won the Tulving Prize for his discoveries in, in computer science. Um, again, a very imaginative person who's always realized, recognized that he's aphantasic. Blake Ross, who created Firefox Mozilla, wrote a wonderful Facebook post about his discovering that he was aphantasic. Oliver Sacks, one of my heroes, a great neurologist, wonderful writer, was aphantasic. So, and we've actually, we've been approached by so many aphantasic artists, believe it or not, this really surprised us, that we put on an exhibition of aphantasic art. The fact that you, you lack sensory imagery doesn't mean that you, you can't be an imaginative person. So I guess like this, my question is like, which jobs are we made for? Which jobs are we not made for, I guess? So as you say, and you, you, you might accuse me of contradicting myself in what I've just said, but I'll, I'll explain. There does seem overall to be a bias towards science, maths, IT, more abstract professions among people that fantasia. Um, if you look at the, at the whole group, but within the group, there are exceptions, many exceptions to that rule. So I've mentioned that there's a group of aphantasic artists, and they're really interesting when one talks to them. One of the interesting things is that for many of them, aphantasia actually seems to be a motivation to create visual art. Because we can't see things in our mind's eye and we love the visual world, we have to make things to be able to see them. And they describe their process in interesting ways. So some aphantasic artists say that they have to have their subject in front of them. Some say that they work using kind of preformed materials, so making collage, for example. But there's quite a large group who say that they use the page as their mind's eye. And there's a very nice example of this. The main illustrator of the Little Mermaid film is a guy called Glenn Keane, who's a very well-known illustrator, but he's a fantastic. When he works, he begins by making a kind of scribble on the page, and then he finds something interesting visually in that. And then there's a great deal of rubbing out and editing as, as he works. He and a number of other fantastic artists describe a kind of dialogue with the page that they're working with. And it, it, it is rather as if they have a kind of external mind's eye. And then at the other extreme, I don't think you know, hyperfantasia seems to be associated with more creative, traditionally creative occupations. Certainly, I think if you went to an art school, you'd find that people's imagery vividness was on the high side rather than the low side on average. But again, there are plenty of exceptions, plenty of hyperfantasic scientists around. Charles Darwin had very vivid imagery. So as I say, it's the vividness of your, of your sensory imagery is a kind of interesting facet of your being. It has quite a big influence on what it's like to be you, I think, on one sort of moment-to-moment inner life. But it's, it's not decisive. It doesn't determine that you're going to be an airplane pilot or a scientist or an artist, because <laughs> there are many, plenty of other influences playing into such decisions. So I guess if you can can recap this, just know yourself, I guess, is, is the message, right? And Yeah, I think it's helpful to know yourself. It's certainly interesting, isn't it? I, mean, I think many people go through life without realizing that they have unusual quirks in the nature like this, because we all take ourselves to be normal. Yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it, it requires something to happen to make the discovery that actually you're a little bit different. What was it that helped you to realize that you're aphantasic? 
I, I talked to my business partner who brought up like he sees he said, all these yeah, yeah. images in his mind, you know. And sure. Okay. So that's the quite typical typical story. It's often when people are you have to, I think you have to be having quite a, a conversation with somebody you know quite well, which sort of in a way a quite intimate conversation. It's often when people are you know, recollecting a holiday that they've had together or something of that kind, and an aphantasic person will realize that the other person is seems to be having a kind of experience that they don't have access to. And then people with aphantasia realize just as you described at the beginning, that all this talk about seeing things in the mind's eye, which up till then they'd assumed was metaphorical, is actually... Yes, it's, it's actually real. Yes, People really are. <laughs> I always thought like, you know, when, when you can't fall asleep, just count cheap was the dumbest thing yeah. ever. You just lay there and count. We're beginning to learn a little about the underlying neural differences between people with more or less vivid imagery. Um, but there's, there's much more to do along those lines. We've done some recent work looking at what's called resting state brain imaging, which is where you simply ask somebody to lie in a scanner and chill. You monitor their brain activity. That kind of study has proved really interesting over the last 20 years because the, the brain is actually never, never at rest. It's always kind of humming along. You can look at the resting activity and you can pick out networks. So you can, you can find a set of regions, for example, at the back of the brain, which are all talking to one another and have to do with vision. And another set of regions in the middle of the brain talking to one another have to do with movement. There's an interesting set of regions which is particularly active in the resting brain called the default mode network, which seems to have a bit to do with imagination generally. So it's it's active when you're thinking about the past, anticipating the future, for example. What, what we have found in our study recently, comparing people with hyperphantasia and aphantasia, is that there are stronger connections in the resting brain between visual areas and regions at the front of the brain that are involved in thought control and decision-making. So it makes a kind of intuitive sense. So I think in, the, in a hyperphantasic brain, if you direct your mind to a particular topic, think about a tree, you're going to automatically activate visual areas in a way that is not the case if you're aphantasic. Think about a tree perfectly well, but you, you do it in a, a somewhat different way to someone with, with hyperphantasia in whom imagery will immediately kind of spring into being and, and become an important part of that thinking. You mentioned before that it's it's possible for people to conjure up images even if they have aphantasia. Like, is is there something like some training sequence you can do, or like this? There is there some that you just like get a little better at it. You know, for for example, it's something I do visual actually. Just oh, I don't know if it's really visual, but when I uh, when I want to remember a four digit code that my bank sends me to my cell phone, then have to enter it somewhere. I think to some degree I do this in a visual auditory manner, you know, which I usually don't do this, you know, so like in this kind of like very short period, I, I'm able to hold this thingy in my mind to, you know, to enter it somewhere. So any exercises, tips, tricks? I think what I said earlier was that people with fantasia will experience imagery in certain situations as they're dropping off to sleep in dreams, not typically during the, the normal wakeful day. And we haven't really looked at this systematically, but I've heard, I've now heard from many people with aphantasia who have tried to cultivate imagery in a, in a number of ways. One of the techniques is, 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 I think, called image streaming. Essentially, the idea is that you, you look at an object, you look away from it, you try to hold it in your mind, and you then gradually build on that. It doesn't seem to work very well. <laughs> Frust um, frustrating yeah, exercise. Most people, most people with aphantasia find that, that sort of exercise process pretty frustrating. So... My impression is that there probably is a, a bit of a wall that, that it's difficult to climb over. 
But um, curiously, in a way, aphantasia doesn't seem to have a big impact on standard memory. So one of the things we did in our recent study was to just to give standard verbal and visual memory tests to people with aphantasia and hyperphantasia, and people with aphantasia do fine. You could say that's very strange. You know, how can somebody who can't visualize perform well on a standard visual memory test? Well, I'm not sure, but, but they do. It raises the question of what imagery does for us, what its function is, and that, I think that's a much... I think the answer to that question is much less obvious than it may seem, because one of the peculiarities about aphantasia is that people like you get you get along with life absolutely fine. It's not, it, it certainly isn't a major handicap. It it does seem to influence autobiographical memory, for example, but it's it doesn't stop you. Do we have learning. do we have a different area in our brain that is like kind of lit up more with people that have aphantasia versus people who are like very visual? Yeah. So we know that in brain terms, visualizing is a little bit like seeing. If you look at a, the face of a friend and then try to visualize it, you will activate, while you're visualizing, you activate a similar set of regions in the visual brain to those you activate when you're looking. You just activate them a bit more weakly. And we know from at least some studies that when that people who lack imagery fail to activate those regions as strongly or at all. So what has to happen when you visualize is that you kind of drive the, drive the brain backwards, if you like. When you're looking at something, there's information streaming in through the eyes, activating your visual brain, then flowing through to areas that allow you to recognize what you're looking at. When you visualize, you have to kind of activate those memories, if you like, and they will then drive the visual brain top down rather than bottom up, if that makes sense. And so we, we think what's happening in aphantasia is that for some reason, that top down process is working less strongly than it normally does. And so it's activating sensory areas during attempted imagery less strongly than most people. Yeah, but there's more, a, but there but there's no other like some other area that's like more developed with people that have. Uh, well, again, there, there may be. So I, my interest in this actually began 20 years ago when I met a patient who had lost the ability to visualize following a procedure on his heart. Very delightful, articulate man who gave a very clear account of this. He previously had very visual, vivid visual imagery. He used to get himself to sleep by imagining faces of friends, places he visited. He lost that ability. His dreams became a visual. Um, when he read previously, he'd entered a visual world. That stopped happening. One of the things that puzzled us about him, interested us about him, was that despite having lost imagery, he could still give pretty good visual descriptions. So if you said, you know, tell us what Edinburgh Castle looks like, he could do that remarkably well. And when we asked him how, he said, well, you know, I just know. So we went on and we did a functional imaging, a brain imaging study with him. And when he looked at faces, he had entirely normal brain activation in visual areas. When he tried to visualize them, we didn't see the normal activity, but we did see strong activity at the front of the brain. And in his case, that was probably because he was making a considerable effort to visualize and was experiencing some frustration in being unable to do so. So those frontal areas have to do with cognitive control and they get excited also by sort of cognitive dissonance if you're trying to do something that you're finding hard. Also interesting that you say like in, in the English language to know something well is like to know it by heart, you know, get the heart yeah. surgery, you know, yeah. even though. Yes, yes, that was curious. I'm sure we'll learn more about this. Joel Pearson, my colleague in Sydney, thinks that or has some evidence that visual, the vividness of visual imagery is related to the area of your visual cortex. So I think that's still uncertain, but it's something we're planning to look at. Is there, if been publishing a bunch of books. Do you have like one about aphantasia on the horizon? Interesting that you should ask. Well, so I've, I've been working for a long, quite a long while now on a quite a big book about imagination generally. And there's going to be some 
Aphantasia content in, in there. And then I think I might write something shorter later on um, focusing on, on this topic because it, it, it's such a, uh, a fascinating one. And, uh, and it seems to, it catches people's interest, I think, because we are, we're all interested in what goes on in one another's heads. Um, and it's rather fascinating to discover that some people's experience is so different to one's own. Yes, very much so. I wrote a kind of review article for American Scientist last year, which is if, if anyone wanted a, an easily accessible short review would be the place to go. I, I can send that to you. Yes, we'll include this in the show notes. Talking about show notes, where can people find you and the things that you publish, etc.? So one of the reasons that this research got going, actually, is that my email address got into some early articles about it. <laughs> so we coined the term aphantasia in 2015, having described 21 people with aphantasia. Since then, I've had about 16,000 emails <laughs> uh, and have been helped by a very uh, hardworking team of students in responding to those. So I'm, I'm, I'm perfectly happy for people to get in touch with me directly. They can just email me. I'll, I'll give you my email address. But you can also find me at my university website. Um, and we have an EyesMind website. So in 2015, we were funded to do some kind of interdisciplinary work through what we call the EyesMind project which is still running. So that's a project intended to investigate several aspects of visual imagery, but particularly this aphantasia, hyperphantasia contrast. We'll definitely include this in the show notes so people can find it. I'll send you links to those things. Awesome. Thank you very much for coming on. And thank you very much for doing what you're doing. Maybe we'll all find a way to give me visual images at some point. <laughs> Haven't given up yet. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. Is your e-commerce growing so fast that you can't keep up with supporting your customers in real time? Serve them better in any time zone and language. They will thank you with higher conversion rates and repeat purchases. We build and manage your own dedicated customer experience team of live chat and support agents. Get started today. Visit ltvplus.com. That's ltvplus.com. Thanks for listening to the How We Solve podcast. Dominate your market and crush the competition with our step-by-step -step playbooks. Subscribe right now in your favorite podcast player or visit howwesolve.com.